Bam 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 Welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy, comedy self-help, self-help podcast to make life suck less. I'm Misty Stennett. I'm Lisa Linky. But opposite. But opposite. That's Lisa. <laughs> this is Misty. And today, uh, Misty, you've brought a book. Right. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about the podcast, just in case you want to know. I mean... So, okay. So every week, <laughs> we read... We review, we critique, and we share a popular self-help book. We talk about how we feel about it and what's useful and what's not. And that's basically it. Cool. So You're caught up. Uh, Spoiler alert, I'm going to hate it. Yeah. Misty's going to find something great out of it. Yeah, and we're told that sometimes we swear too much, and other people say the podcast is fucking great. Yeah. So um, that's happening. So if you like what you hear, go buy the book. Enjoy it. If you hate it. We don't. We don't care. It's all good. Yeah, it's we've fine. done this anyway. We didn't permission do it for grant, you. Permission we didn't granted. Do this for you. This is called self help. We're here for ourselves. Uh, no, Misty, really, we're trying to be of service. What book are you going to enlighten us with today? Oh, I was hoping I could continue talking while making that noise. Not successful so far. <laughs> this is "I Will Teach You to Be Rich" by Ramit Sethi. Cool. Have you ever heard of it? No. So I was so engaged by the f- very short two book financial series <laughs> we did recently, and I got some. Why are you laughing? The two book financial series. The series, mm-hmm. um, uh, finance, mm-hmm. as you say. I say finance. You say finance. Oh, let me tell you a little secret. Once you have a master's degree or above, it's finance. Oh, my God. Get out of the studio. That's why going once you own one, it's called a Porsche. No, my dad has a doctorate in economics or and finance, and he was a professor of finance, and they don't call it finance. Once An undergrad calls it finance. Sounds pretty bougie, like yeah, an fine. invisible barrier to entry, like a little secret only smart people know. Well, now I've shared it with you. Finance. Fi, fi. I defy with finance. Um, but I got some feedback that uh, that uh, some listeners were enjoying the financial series. Okay. And so uh, here we go. So this is I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. Thank you to Jesse Chapman once again for recommending this book. I read the first edition. There is an update edition with 80 more pages of user success stories. Update. Oh, <clears throat> here's context you need before I tell you this part. This book was published in March of 2009, right after the 2008 financial crisis. So, Lisa's face is amazing. Was it written between the the crisis and the publishment or the publishing, or was it like in publish in the can or like in the pipeline? I don't know exactly how it works in the publishing world, but I imagine that he probably turned in his manuscript up to a year before it actually hit shelves. I don't know. But so 2009, 
So obviously some of the information and examples he gives could be outdated. Sure. So, but I read the first edition because I wanted to know. You wanted to I wanted, be taught from the yeah, get-go. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, and I did not realize there was an updated edition until I was most of the way through the book. Cool. So the updated edition has 80 more pages of user success stories, updated interest rates, updated technology. A lot has changed since 2009. It's been a decade. Um, but Ramit actually says on his website, IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com, mm-hmm. that He's really proud that the majority of what he said in the first book still holds true. So it's basically just updated a few Quick question. Does he consider a house an asset? Not always. Fuck him. Um, We'll get to why. Okay. We'll get to why. All right. Um, So as far as first impressions, I am going to show you, Lisa, what the cover looks like. You describe it to us. Oh, he's yelling at me. Um, it's bright yellow, and it says, I will teach you to be rich! And then he's sitting cross-legged with a pink polo. Yeah, and he's barefoot, and he looks like maybe he's your friend, or invoking like a sort of guru aspect to it. He looks uh, relaxed and happy. While and, he's yelling at me. And the cover also says, uh, this was a New York Times bestseller, the cover says, no guilt, no excuses, no BS. Just a six-week program that works. Um, and oh, rem- wow. Well, Dave Ramsey's talking about 24, 36 months, and this guy's got you in six weeks. Six weeks. Um, and he uh, is an Indian author, and I will tell you a little bit about him in a moment. Um, the book is 272 pages. He reads the audiobook. This was an Overdrive app faux free. Okay. Read by the author. Um I personally did not love the humor or the tone of voice in the book. It's a little outdated. There's fat shaming. And there's a lot of like, if you had your choice between two hot twins and one did this and one did that as a as a metaphor, um, which I didn't love, but it might really resonate with a younger audience or a 2009 audience, which is what I wrote. So the hardcover, uh, I don't think there's a hardcover, but the paperback is $11.86. I'm going to say in 2009, I wouldn't have enjoyed it then. No, and, and this... Could be because he was 27 when he wrote it. So the hardcover, I don't think that Lisa's losing her mind. I don't think there's a hardcover. She's leaning fully back in her chair. Her hands are covering her face. Why am I listening to a 27 year old? So we'll get there. So uh, the paperback is 1186. Mm-hmm. Kindle's 841. Mm-hmm. Audiobook thirty dollars and fifty eight. I want to listen to him. Or fourteen ninety five via a Kindle credit. Or do what I did, Overdrive app for free. Thank you so much to public libraries everywhere. So, Ramit was 27 when he wrote this book. This, what I'm about to read you about the author, is from his website, I will be teach you to be rich.com. And here are his words From dorm room to New York Times bestseller list. I started this site while I was studying technology and psychology at Stanford. Since I came from a middle-class family, the only way I could afford college was to pay my own way. That's when I built a system to apply to 60-plus scholarships. My hard work paid off, and I earned enough to attend Stanford. But when I got my first scholarship check, I invested it in the stock market and immediately lost half my money. I hate Oops. Him. I hate him. That's when I decided to learn how money really works. Okay. I saw all these tips that financial experts kept throwing around, like keep a budget and stop spending money on lattes. I realized most of it made no sense. And like that book, The Emperor's New Clothes, I realized experts loved to tell people what to do, but nobody was actually doing it. Wait a minute. Keeping a budget made no sense to him? 
Uh, yes, that okay. is, those are his words. Okay. Instead of saying no to spending on everything, I wanted to use money to say yes. I knew there was a better way to live a rich life if we could use psychology to focus on what actually works, not just for personal finance, but all aspects of life, money, careers, relationship, business, fitness, and more. Since then, I've been testing and sharing my findings with the world via I Will Teach You To Be Rich. I've also written a New York Times bestselling book, been profiled in a six-page Fortune article, and pictured next to Warren Buffett Forbes magazine. He's missing the word in. I copied and pasted this from his website. What is this name dropping? A six-page Forbes article. And have been featured by a long list of media, including the Wall Street Journal, ABC News, NPR, Fox Business, PBS, CNBC, and more. Shut up! Shut up! I also have more documented success stories than anyone else I know of, more than 20,000 at least to count. And I wrote... I mean, basically, he had no credentials when he wrote the book, except for a master's degree in social psychology and interpersonal processes from Stanford, which is not to be discounted, but that does not make you an expert. And when you're 27, how can you tell us about long-term financial building? However, all of his success came after the book and because of the book, and those credentials are now being used to sell the book. So this is what I find problematic. People on a Jen Sincero. Yeah, and uh, uh, I think it's I think it's in Four Hour Work Week by Timothy Ferris, which we will eventually cover on this podcast mm-hmm. when I can bring myself to read it again. Um, but yeah, it's this whole sort of like you fake credibility until you're a bestseller or someone with momentum. And then you go, look at all the momentum I have. Listen to what I'm saying. But you didn't have real credentials to be a platform to say those Scream things. Scream barf. Scream barf. Okay, let's dive right in. All right. Uh, in the intro. Uh, The book starts by making a promise. If you start with any amount of money and do just 85% of what Ramit says, you'll be on your way to getting rich. One penny. Yes. That's more than you had yesterday. Mm -hmm. He says it's much simpler than we tell ourselves. We don't need to be a financial expert to be rich. He says many people experience decision paralysis because of an overwhelming amount of information and options. The single most important thing you can do to be rich is to start early. Bad news to anyone who's not in their 20s and 30s listening to this podcast and has not invested yet. Shut up, dude. He also says personal finance advice was written by and for old white men for far too long, which I fully agree with. He says many people feel like they need to have all their finances in order to begin, but he answers this with an analogy where he says you don't need to be an iron chef to make a grilled cheese. I hate him so much. Well, I like that analogy. I do. That's right, girl. You can make a quick meal. Okay. You don't need to have knife skills. Okay. You, so, will, you can't cut off your fingers. So something I really liked about the intro was he talks about decide what being rich means to you. Mm. So, which I never really thought about. Mm. I just thought like, oh, well, mm. oh, Lisa's so into it now. To someone, it might mean being able to buy ultra gourmet meals yes. at a bunch of restaurants. Drive a Lamborghini down Hollywood. That could be what, listen... You are feisty right now. Lisa has put her gloves on. Were you giggling with me, Seb? Okay, thank you. You should see the eyes Lisa's giving me. She's come to play. Uh To someone else, it might be traveling or Mm. buying nice clothes. Mm -hmm. You need to decide what it means to you so you aren't trying to arbitrarily keep up with friends based on things you don't value. Is this my homework? What? Just stop trying to be like me, Lisa. To, to decide what my, what being rich means to me. It's not your homework. Okay. We'll get to your homework. Uh, so here's the overview of the six-week game plan. 
One, set up your credit cards and learn how to improve your credit score. Fine. This is already a giant departure from Dave Ramsey. True. Right? Uh, Dave Ramsey did uh, uh, The Total Money Makeover. It was a few episodes ago. Highly recommend to listen to that episode. That book had a lot of great financial financial things to say. Uh, number well, two. you wouldn't say financial. Oh, that makes you an asshole? Come on. What are these bougie rules? Finance. Financial. I can't. I cannot. I am triggered my and moving is, on. My dad is very happy right now. Mm, get your bank account set up right is number two. Mm-hmm. Number three, open a 401k and investment account. Mm-hmm. Number four, figure out how much you're spending and what to do with your money. Wait, okay. did he say 401k and investment account? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that assumes uh, that people can number open five, a 401k. N- number five, automate your new infrastructure so your accounts flow together nicely. Mm-hmm. Number six, learn about investing and why it isn't the same as picking stocks. Great. That's the whole plan. If that's any general to you, it's because it is. Mm-hmm. Chapter one, optimize your credit cards. Mm-hmm. He says credit is one of the most vital factors in getting rich, which is a full departure and full contrast to Dave Ramsey, who says to never use credit cards and avoid them at all costs. So, But is, what's this guy's name again? Ramit Sethi. Is Ramit talking about credit or credit score? So... He breaks down exactly what your credit score is, what what it's based off of, and how companies calculate your score. He also breaks down the difference between your credit score and your credit report, mm-hmm. which simply tracks all credit-related activities. Mm-hmm. I also would like to point out that the algorithms that determine your credit score are secret, and we don't actually know. No one knows. And mm-hmm. it's infuriating because it affects us so much. So the fact that he's saying he knows how they're determined is... Uh, Not 100% true. No, he says, oh, yeah, well, you know what? I wrote, he breaks down exactly what your credit score is. He breaks down what we know your credit score to be, like number of accounts you have open, your credit utilization ratio, But there's other factors that we don't know. Right, yes. And he does not say, I know the things nobody else knows. Great. Um, Listen, I am on his ass. I know you are. This is going to be a great episode uh, if you like conflict. (laughs) So uh, these two documents help lenders decide how risky you are as a borrower and if they should lend you money and what interest rate. This is why I fucking hated Dave, Dave Ramsey. Why? Because he was like, you don't ever need a credit card because you don't need a good credit score to get a loan and I was like you're a fucking liar yeah because on his in his theory it's it's no you only buy things that you can buy so if you can't afford a big wedding or a house or whatever you don't do that yet that's fine but then when you need to make a big purchase in which you need a loan you have no credit history and you cannot get a loan yeah Ugh, yeah, Dave so, Ramsey, shut up. So it sounds like you're agreeing with Ramit so far. Fine. Okay, so um, he uh, Ramit says that knowing how these work yes. and getting a better credit score can help you save thousands of dollars over the life of a loan. It's true because you have a better percentage. Uh, yeah. Like on your mortgage, you As- get a better percentage. Yeah, especially if it's something you're paying on for 30 years. Yeah. That adds up really fast. So once a year by law for free, you are allowed to check your credit report That's at true. annualcreditreport.com. Because the more frequently you check your report, it can affect your credit rating. Which is so dumb. Unless it's you all, have like an unless you have like you pay. And someone you get a made thing. up credit, and it affects us all, and we don't even know the rules. And I just think that's so fucked up. Yeah. Uh, so he says, don't scoff or dismiss that you may eventually need to borrow money. Buying a house, having a baby, yeah. or planning a wedding all cost money. Yeah. He says the key here is that rich people plan 
before they need to plan, which I thought was an interesting way to look at it. So an example he uses in the book is like, okay, so say you want a big wedding, but you're not dating anyone yet. Are you saving for your wedding yet? No, because I don't believe in the big wedding complex. Yes. I do agree with what he's saying. I don't agree that it's just rich people because that that assumes that – People who save don't ever have catastrophic medical yeah. illness. Et yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, but I, I think like he's saying intonation. like this can help you mitigate some of that. Agreed. Right. Agreed. It's this kind of the same thing as like an emergency fund. Well, except. yeah. I mean, that most people live on credit is not helping America. Yeah. If you pay your credit cards on time, they can offer benefits like free car rental insurance, mm-hmm. help mm-hmm. you track your money, get mm-hmm. points for purchases. Mm-hmm. But most people have a horror story about late payments and fees. Mm-hmm. So as long as you manage a credit card well, they're worth having, mm-hmm. says Ramit. Mm-hmm. But if you don't pay your bill off in full at the end of every month, you'll owe an enormous amount on the remaining balance due to interest and fees. So... um he talks about the types of credit cards he recommends and why he says 1% cash, bla- cash back is basically worthless. Uh, he says two or three credit cards is plenty to have because there are other ways to establish credit. Mm-hmm. If you have no income, you can get a secure credit card, which requires you to pay your bank in advance. Prepaid. Mm-hmm. Which is great. So that's- I think Visa does that. I know Russell Simmons had yeah, one you, for a while. Yeah, they'll literally just decline purchases if you don't have enough in your account, mm-hmm. which is a great way for somebody who's just starting out mm-hmm. and wants to, because I know it's it's scary to open up a credit card. Yeah. It is. Your first one is very scary. And then after that, you're like, wow, well, okay. Oh, I was not scared. In college, they were like, you want a credit card? I was like, you know I do. Yeah. How'd it work out? It great. I paid off a lot of liquor on that card after Great. I graduated. Great. That was my At first a year. 15% interest rate. That was my first year of working as a waitress. Yeah, that was fun. Great. Slinging liquor to pay for liquor. Thank you. Oh, that's so dark. So he also covers credit utilization rates, mm-hmm. which is how much you owe versus how much credit's available to you. Sure. So if you have a $5,000 credit limit, you're spending $1,000, you are using 20% of available credit, mm-hmm. right? And basically, the lower you can get that ratio, the better. So if you if you know you spend $1,000 on your credit card every month because you've hooked it up to all your utilities and bills and mm-hmm, groceries, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you have a $20,000 limit, that's a much better ratio than that. And um, part of you getting extended credit is by paying on time and having longevity mm-hmm. with a credit card. Exactly. So he covers all of that. He's very detailed. I'm trying to do a pretty broad view here. Otherwise, this would be a five-hour long episode. He says... Only if you have no credit card debt and make all your payments on time should you do the following step, which is call to increase your credit limit every 6 to 12 months. Why would anybody do that? To improve your credit ratio. If they need that. I mean, if you're, rating, like, if you're going to have to take out a loan or whatever. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. So he, bri- he briefly touches on student debt and talks about how setting up your account to automatically pay an extra $50 or $100 on yes. your student loan can help you get out of debt years faster. Yep. He also strongly encourages you to call your lender if there's no way you'll be out of debt in a reasonable amount of time. So if you're like, I'm going to be paying on these things for 40 years, which I think a lot of people are facing, honestly, with mm-hmm. these enormous um college loan amounts, you can ask your creditor for advice on what to do because he says they've heard it all. Yeah. So if you need to miss payments for three months while you look for a job, 
you can call them and talk to them about it. And they actually can offer a lot of solutions, mm-hmm. which is something that I didn't know. Well, I mean, ultimately, every lender just wants their money back. Yeah. So they're willing to be creative on payment plans. Right. Exactly. Like, it's just like a hospital. But it's cool that they can go, OK, we'll put a temporary stay on your account for three months. It won't awesome. affect your credit score. Not and everybody you... will get that. That's right. That's <laughs> right. right. But it's worth a call, sure. which I didn't know. So his he, uh, five steps to paying off credit card debt are, one, figure out exactly how much debt you have. Two, decide what to pay off first. He says there are two schools of thought. Pay the minimums on all cards, then pay more money to the highest interest card. Um, but the other school of thought, he actually quotes Dave Ramsey. The Dave Ramsey method is to pay the minimum on all cards, but then pay off the one with the smallest balance first. So you get that snowball mm-hmm. effect. Mm-hmm. Ramit says the important thing is not to optimize your payment method, but to start paying. So choose one of these and just go for it, yep. which I thought was good. I was like, cool, let's not overthink this. Just start paying them down. Yeah, just get it. He says you can actually negotiate down the APR, which Mm -hmm. I also didn't know. Mm -hmm. He has a script in this chapter that you can use when you call the credit representative at your card's company. So that could be very valuable to someone looking to do that. Decide Number four is decide where the money to pay off your cards will come from. Ramit is not a fan of balance transfers or home equity lines of credit because you can lose your house. He says the least sexy but best way to do this is to spend less on other things Mm -hmm. and put that money towards her. And he keeps saying throughout the book, would you rather be sexy or would you rather be rich? Because he says a lot of what he's saying is like boring, slow ways to increase your wealth and not the sexy option. It's not like picking a great stock and hoping it'll take off or winning the lottery. It's like slowly but surely investing over time. I find that sexy. Yeah, you do. Mm -hmm. Not surprised. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're such a contrarian. I love it. Uh, He says, get started. This is number five. If it takes you more than a week to get started, you're overthinking it. It's all about action. So, um, yeah. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, beat the banks. Set your bank accounts up right. In 2010, I must have written that wrong because this book was published in motherfucking 2009. Misty had a straight up time warp meltdown. I was listening to this book and cooking and taking notes. Um, It was a pot of soup, y'all. It was really good. Okay. Uh, uh, Let's say uh, 2007. That sounds like 10. Recently, around 2009. Banks made over $10 billion in overdraft fees sure. alone. That's it. What We got to get into banking, Lisa. No. Savings accounts can earn interest, and typically checking accounts do not. No. Thank you, Ramit. Interest rates matter because a 1% interest rate means you could actually lose money since inflation is about 3% per year, mm-hmm. which I'd never thought of. Mm-hmm. So I guess any money that sits in the bank is just slowly going down. All right. Right. So um, setting banks up right, he advocates for using smaller online banks rather than big name local banks because they spend less on marketing and can offer higher interest rates because of it. The downside is that if you want to make a withdrawal, you often have to wait a few days for the money. Uh, Having a separate savings account forces you to keep your long-term goals in mind, even if you only have a few hundred dollars. It's about building good financial habits. He recommends having accounts at several separate institutions. For example, a high-interest savings account at one bank, a fee-free checking account at a brick-and-mortar, and a checking account with interest somewhere else. He makes recommendations on which banks to use. Uh, and again, this was 10 years ago in 2009. So I'm hoping the new edition includes some of that because I do think banking has changed a lot. Yeah, there's only like four banks. 
Yeah. And also there's ATMs everywhere. You never have to go into a bank. You never have to see a person. Um, And he even gives you the phone numbers of these banks. So it's very practical. When choosing a bank, he looks at interest rates, conveniences, and features. I think this part is uh, pretty outdated. And it doesn't even include like Apple and Android Pay. Okay. Right? So that, uh, so week two action steps, and I like this, there are action steps at the end of every chapter. One, open a checking account or reassess the one you have. Find one that works for you with no fees and no minimums. Number two, open an online high interest savings account because you're more likely to not touch your savings if it isn't immediately accessible to you. He's all about kind of tricking yourself into this and using psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, option 2A, optional, open a high-interest online checking account. Number three, fund your online savings account. Um, try to have one and a half months of living expenses in your checking account or as close to it as you can manage. So that's chapter two. Pretty simple. This this book to me is so far um, – Felt just like somebody who knows nothing. It's, it's now, geared towards who millennials. Does not have a checking account, right? And it's geared towards millennials who maybe just know absolutely nothing and are like, "What is finance?" Is there a millennial who doesn't have a checking account? I don't know these days. It's like a kid comes out and we hand them also, an iPhone. Millennials are thirty-eight. Yeah, we well, yeah, elder millennials. It's anybody from uh, what is it, nineteen eighty-two to nineteen ninety-eight. It's a pretty broad span. Yeah, it's yeah. like 23 to 38. Yeah. 22 yeah. to 38. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, this was a 27-year-old writing this. So chapter three, get ready to invest. This is week three, right? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, week three. Um, get ready to invest. You can earn 8% over the long term by investing, Ramit says. Over the 20th century, the average stock market return was 11%. Adjusting that 3% for inflation, we get 8%, which is what Dan- Dave Ramsey says as well. So to put that in perspective... If you invested $1,000 at age 25 and didn't touch it until age 65, it would be worth about $21,000. He says young people, people in their 20s, don't invest because they're scared. And yet these are the most important investing years of our lives. People think they don't make enough to invest. But there's a phenomenon that when people enter their 40s, they suddenly realize they should have been investing all along and they start to freak out about it. He says that a high percentage of young people said that they plan to save for retirement by winning the lottery, to which Ramit Sethi says, I hate you. I feel like you two would get along a little mm-hmm, bit. Mm-hmm. Um, 80% of first-generation affluence gained their wealth by controlling their spending, investing their money, and sometimes entrepreneurship. When you look at the stats, the average millionaire saves 20% of his or her income. He says investing is the single biggest way to get rich. Even if you're a project manager that makes 50000 a year, you might end up richer than a doctor who makes 250000 a year and doesn't invest, which was interesting. He covers 401ks, which are tax-deferred retirement accounts your employer offers, as long as you agree to not touch the money until the retirement age of 59 and a half. Not all employers offer them. Not They don't. They don't. Um, and you really only contribute to them while you're working at that company. And each employer gets to, de- to determine how much they'll match. Right. If they match. If at all. Right. So uh, so with a 401k, as long as you don't touch it till you're 59 and a half, you don't pay taxes on the money going in, only on the money going out. So you can actually contribute quite a bit more, which means it grows more now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he says, always take advantage of employer matches. It's free money. Mm -hmm. So just do it. Uh, He also covers common questions and concerns about 401ks, like what if I need to get my money out? What if I change jobs? Will I have to pay taxes? How do I roll it over into an IRA? He says 78% of young people cash out their 401k when they change jobs. I know. I know. Which is the worst thing you can do, he says. Because you get taxed right then before it's that time to. You have to pay huge penalties and taxes, and then that money is no longer working for you. So it really penalizes you in a lot of ways. Um, He then walks us through step-by-step how to set up a 401k. Read the book if you'd like to hear this section. But there is something that I found when I was um, working at my first adult corporate job. I signed up for a 401k. I was not making anything. I had a weekend job just to be able to pay my bills. I mean, I was an assistant and I was making something like 25000 a year, like below the poverty line in Los Angeles 10 years ago. It was hard mm-hmm. and it was at a big company. But I found that there was a sweet spot when it came to investing in my 401k. So my biweekly paychecks were like eight or $900, right? So not like 450 mm-hmm. a week. But I found that I would be taxed, say it was 1000 for math, I'd be taxed on $1,000 if I didn't contribute anything to my 401k. But if I was able to put 50 bucks in there, I'd only be taxed on $950. And I found a sweet spot where my paycheck remained, my take-home pay remained exactly the same. Oh, right, because you you didn't get bumped up into a new tax bracket. Exactly. But it's like, it was one of those things where I found like, oh, if I contributed $100 a paycheck, I'm getting taxed on $900. So it's a little bit less. So my taxes are a little less. So my take-home's the same. But $100's going into my account. So it really was like free, like truly free money in that sense. And then they matched a little so that was cool that's cool probably should have worked there longer (laughs) um uh, so he talks about Roth IRAs. Mm-hmm. He says it's the best deal for long-term investing. You can invest in whatever you want in, an, in a, a Roth IRA, individual stocks, index funds, anything. With a Roth IRA, you invest already taxed income. So when you pull it out at retirement age, you do not pay tax on that money. And mm-hmm. I'm shouting this for anybody who is listening and does not know this. That's huge. So if you invest $100,000 over your lifetime into this Roth IRA and that turns into $10 million, you don't pay taxes on the $10 million. You get to keep it all. So he walks us through math to highlight the differences of a Roth IRA versus a regular IRA. But like a 401k, it's a long-term investment account, and there are penalties if you withdraw early. Early, and there's limits to what you can uh, uh, contribute Exactly. But there are exceptions, which I did not know before Mm -hmm. reading this book. You can actually pull out your principal, which is the actual amount of money you've invested, not any of the growth, Mm -hmm. at any time penalty-free, which I did not know. Kind of wish I didn't know that. They also make <laughs> they also make exceptions for putting a down payment on a house and funding education for you or your partner, mm-hmm. which I think is very very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't he says don't wait. Every dollar you invest now becomes worth much more later, which you've said a few times on the podcast. Uh, even putting off investing by two years could mean losing out on tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says so. Open up an investment account now and you can think about your investment account as your house and an IRA as one of the rooms inside mm-hmm. if this isn't making sense. Um, but I gotta say if you have any financial experience at all this book is so boring. Mm-hmm. It is so basic. It is so um, 
So, yeah. So this is not for you if you are like, how do I overhaul my finances or what is a new philosophy to live by? This is like the ABCs of finance. Um, So for investment accounts, he recommends Vanguard, TRO, and Schwab. But again, this was 10 years ago. You and I both like Vanguard a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the main thing to look out for is fees. Um, uh, And he says signing up should only take you about an hour. You can do it online. He loves oh oh he's you can also call them over the phone and I love doing that. I've set up my investment accounts over the phone because there's a person. You can talk to them, you can ask them questions, mm-hmm. they'll tell you exactly what to expect. They'll say, Great, I'm emailing you the paperwork now, and you don't you can do it while you're like driving around. It's great. Um so he says even ten dollars a month will help you build wealth and link your checking accounts so you can set up automatic payments into investments. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. So he hasn't talked about what to invest in, just what kind of investing is so far. Chapter four, conscious spending. Week four. Yeah. This one says chapter four. I don't know if it breaks up because there's eight chapters in six weeks, but uh-huh. I think it does break up into... Sure. I think it does. Uh, he doesn't believe in budgeting, but rather conscious spending. Oh, fuck off. He also talks about cheapness versus frugality. And he's in favor of frugality. He says, cheap people care about the cost of something and frugal people care about the value of something. Oh, my God. Actually, I felt really validated because I was like, oh, thank God. Okay, I'm frugal, not cheap um, when I heard that, which is great. He uses an example of how a cheap person, if you all go out to lunch and their meal costs $7.95, they will put in $8 even though they know that with tax and tip it's closer to 11 Frugal people, on the other hand, if they know they only have $10 to spend at lunch, they will get water and not order a soft drink to cost extra money. He says the difference is that cheap people's cheapness affects all those around them and frugal people's frugality affects only them. All right. That makes sense? Okay, great. You're loving it. No, I just like, if somebody wants to call themselves cheap, that's fine. But he's placing a value on cheap and placing a different value on frugality when, you know, you can argue they're the same word. They're synonyms for one another. Sure. Fine. He's putting it whatever. Sure. I'm, I hate him. Keep well, going. Well, he says the mindset of frugal people is the key to being rich. What you do is you decide what things you like to spend extravagantly on and mercilessly cut spending on everything else. So he – this is the part of the book that felt like, oh, okay, we're getting to some kind of original idea. <laughs> Week four. Thank you. Week four, a month into the book. He says conscious spending uh, is deciding how much you want to spend on the things you love each month. And uh, I said, sounds like a budget to me. Okay. Um, But his goal is to make us feel guilt-free about the things we are spending on. So that is cool. All right. It's all about once you automatically transfer money to your investment accounts and your savings each month and you've paid your bills – Whatever's left over, you can consciously spend. Um, so his idea, which we'll get a little more into, is to automate what's going into your account so you never think about it. So by the time any money hits your checking account, that's yours. That's yours to spend. You've already done the responsible things with it. Go have fun. So he also says that we often make snap judgment judgments about our friends based on their clothes and their jobs. But he says we need to keep in mind the context that we don't have, like how someone making less money might save more than someone making more money, or how someone who buys $300 jeans might be happy doing so because they put so much away in savings. Okay. (laughs) It's not my damn business. Right, right, right. But he was just basically like, you can't tell people's finances just from looking at them. 
Um, so he he talks about something called the a la carte method, which is cancel all the sus- subscriptions you have that you pay for uh, and only pay for what you use, mm-hmm. like a day pass to the gym instead of a monthly membership, which I thought was very interesting. Because if you're like, I'm paying $100 a month to go to the gym, you're like, okay, how much is that per per visit, right? If you only end up going four or five times that month, you might be better off just paying the $10 day pass each time. So that was interesting. Um, He also says you can only buy an episode of TV you watch instead of paying for cable, to which I say a lot's changed in the last 10 years. You can prime a Netflix subscription out of my cold, dead hands. Uh, So a conscious spending plan includes four buckets of where your money will go. Fixed costs, savings, investments, and guilt-free spending. Fixed costs are things like rent, utilities, and debt. That's what you expect. Every month it stays the same. Exactly. This typically represents 50 to 60% of your take-home pay. Investments will make up about 10% of your take-home pay, or apparently, if you want to be a millionaire, 20. Savings, which include saving for vacations, gifts, a down payment on a house, and unexpected expenses, will be about 5 to 10% of your take-home pay. And finally, guilt-free spending, like drinking, movies, dining out, clothes will be 25 to 35 percent of your take-home pay. Uh, his math is real Which fucked up right seems there. seems like a lot. Well, it it works if you go 50, 10, 10. Yeah. If you go on the lower ends of other things. But yeah. Yeah. yeah he's working on the low end of that to make his guilt-free spending sound great. Because if you go on the high end, 60, 20 is 80. Yeah. You got, you got about 130. 30%. Yeah, yeah. You're looking at 10% of guilt-free spending. Yeah. Well, um, math is why we're listening to him. So he walks you through. <laughs> he walks you through how to calculate each of these categories, including a buffer for unexpected expenses. And I wrote in all caps, it sounds a lot like a budget. Yeah. Um, God damn it. Like, stop saying, no, I don't believe in budgets. Here's how Here's how to put your money in separate just categories each month. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just going to know exactly what's in each bucket. You know bucket. what rhymes with bucket? <laughs> Nantucket. Thank you. He takes us through what he calls <laughs> big wins. He says that while it's fine to try to save in small ways, like buying off-brand cookies instead of name-brand cookies, that's not going to make a huge difference to you in the long run. Yeah, He says you're just being cheap, not frugal. Dang, <laughs> Man, she was ready with that one. He says, instead, you should focus on the big wins, which for most millennials is eating out and drinking. He suggests tackling your areas of biggest spending gradually. So say you look at your finances and you discover that you spend $400 a month on eating out. Take, uh, Take it down to $375 the following month then 350 then 300 and kind of wean yourself off. Also, talk to your landlord because what the fuck's wrong with your stove? Right, right. Um, I will say, though, like, I, Zach and I eat out, like, 80% of oh, our meals. My, Postmates my survives off of me. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, okay, so... Um, wean yourself off slowly until you've cut that big category in half in a way that can sustain Right. In half or in a way that can sustain. Try making a small change at first that you won't even notice and slowly increase yeah, the savings from like there. Order well liquor instead of top shop. Thank you. Or listen, everybody, beans on toast is the best meal. It is the best meal. Lisa's eaten it recently. That's what's happening. Well, listen, you have a British grandmother, so you love beans on toast. Right. So also 
eggs and toast for dinner, right? I, apparently, it's all to do with toast. Um, seriously, a simple side salad with balsamic vinegar and a can of lentil soup. Like, there are ways to eat cheaply a couple times a week. This, I feel like you found a new podcast. Thank you. Cheap Eats with Misty Stone. Frugal Eats with Misty Stone. Frugal Eats. <laughs> Eating frugally. Fancy frugal eats. My favorite recipe is for a frugal strudel. Okay. <laughs> I call it frudel. <laughs> well, that's a good name for a dog. Okay. Another, another system you could try is the envelope system, uh, which Ramit is in favor for. And you know that because it's in his book. Thank you. you oh, where al- you put the money, you allocate yeah, the money like yeah, a so budget, you allocate, like yep. a live budget. <laughs> and then when the money's gone out of that budget, that envelope, you're done. Sounds like a budget. You allocate certain envelopes, figurative or literal, mm-hmm. so you could put them in different bank accounts yeah. with designated money for each area you want to spend in. Nope. If you run out of money in one area, you can use money from another envelope, but that means you can't spend as much in that category. When the envelopes are empty, that's it. I... Have never tried this specific method. Oh, I kind of did once. I would go, I would put a certain amount of cash in my wallet and I'd go, I'm allowed to spend this this week mm-hmm. on eating out or clothes or whatever I want. But the second it's gone, I got to eat all my meals in and I can't buy anything else and I can't see a movie and I can't go out with friends, etc. And I was so surprised how quickly mm-hmm. cash disappears. Because mm-hmm. when I'm swiping my card, it's all theoretical and yeah. it's not. I'm not seeing it leave my wallet. So I found that to be really eye-opening. So I think there is something to be said about handling actual physical money for a month to pay your bills like and see how that budget. feels. Like a budget. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, you're not going to budge him. Okay, nope. I, I'll see myself out. Save for a goal. He says it's harder to save in general than to save for a goal. When his friend was saving for a down payment on a house, he brought a bag lunch. For him, the decision came down to, would I rather have $10 to save toward my new house or $10 for lunch? But his friend was just generally saving, another friend. So for him, he didn't know what he was saving for, so, so a better lunch seemed more appealing than just not spending money. Meanwhile, my friend who brought a bag lunch really let down the whole office, so he was cheap. Also, he cooked fish in the office microwave, which it for everyone, knows everyone is a big not for He has a caveat, which I put in all caps for you. He says many people have asked him, "How can I save ten percent for long-term investing when I don't even have enough for gas?" His answer is that many people who live paycheck to paycheck have more wiggle room than they'd think. He says cooking instead of eating out or not buying a new cell phone every year would allow for this, but most people just don't want to change their habits. He says if you don't fall in this category, then you need to make more money. His strategies include things like negotiating for a raise and getting a side hustle, and he walks you through steps for each. Congrats. Talk to me about week five. (laughs) Lisa's done. Chapter five, save while sleeping. This chapter is all about automating your savings so you never have to think about it. This will help you to never miss the money you invest because you'll never see it. He has a detailed plan of how to gauge all of your expenses and split them up, how to synchronize your bills, automate payments, curb impulse buys, and set alerts and reminders to review your savings. Is this my new voice now? Yeah. (laughs) You sound like you ate it. (laughs) So when do you get to spend your money, right? Thanks. He says money exists for a reason. (laughs) Lisa's losing it. To let you do what you want to do. 
don't forget to invest in yourself. When you're hitting your targets and your savings are on track, spend. Do the thing you've been wanting to do and buy the thing you've been wanting to buy, which I liked. If you're like, oh yeah, I've been putting away 10% of my for a long time. You know what is, thank you. He also says philanthropy is great. So the action steps of this chapter are link your accounts together and automate payments. Thank you, chapter six. The myth of financial expertise. Well, he should have started with that. <laughs> Listen. And he's positioning himself as an expert. I fucking hate him. <laughs> Sorry, hold on. <laughs> Lay it on me. Lay it on me. I'm here for it. No, Lisa, just, you made me do my silent laugh, which is my... <laughs> Yes. Yes. We're getting a full belly laugh. Oh my God. I have so many laughs. And everyone, you're experiencing a deeper range today. He says if experts were really that amazing, the majority of America wouldn't be in debt. Oh, shut up. He says the average college student can outbeat the professionals with better returns, and he has the data to prove it. Shut up. First, no one can predict where the market's going to go. That's true. He cites a lot of examples, including how one big news source said Merrill Lynch was a good buy in 2008, right before it imploded. And how many companies have rated stocks as buys even on the day the companies declared bankruptcy. His point is, the prospectuses, the financial experts, they are not always uh, accurate. Including him. Yep. He also says uh, fund ratings are biased. So if you, of course, if you are, if you're like, okay, I'm going to start investing. I don't know what to invest in. I'm going to look up some mutual funds and see what that's about. They will all have a little document with their fund rating, their history over the last five, ten full history uh, term. Um, but here's something that I didn't know. He says fund ratings are biased. Because if a stock they bought fails and goes bankrupt, it won't be reflected in the fund's returns or ratings because the stock no longer exists, which I did not know. So some funds that you're like, damn, those are really performing well. They could have tons of failed stocks and you'd never know. Uh, Funds don't beat the market 75% of the time. He also goes into a lot of detail about actively managed funds versus passively managed funds like Vanguard versus having an actual financial advisor that you pay and how expense ratios of each differ. Like Bernie Madoff. Yeah. (laughs) He is all about passively managed index funds. If you want to know more about the details, he starts to get much more detailed about halfway through the book. Highly recommend if you want to hear the ins and outs, the basic ins and outs of a lot of this stuff. Chapter seven, investing isn't only for rich people. So he's told us what kinds of accounts to have Mm -hmm. before. And now he gets into exactly where to put your money. He's his but because that's where he keeps his wallet and that's what we are giving him is nope i'm not because i read this on overdrive <laughs> i'm tired <laughs> i didn't know where you were going neither did i no one did no one listening did listen i love you all if you're still here with us bless okay 
He starts this chapter by saying, spend the afternoon choosing a simple portfolio that will make you rich. Oh, what a delightful afternoon. afternoon. Thank you. Again, he advocates automating regular investments. He says it works for two reasons, lower expenses and that it tricks you into investing. Also, you won't need to pay attention to all the hottest stocks and the everyday ups and downs of the market. Wait a second. Did this bitch say spend an afternoon finding a portfolio that will make you rich? Yeah. Choosing a simple portfolio that will make you rich. Cool, 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 cool. Cool, cool, cool. Ask yourself, would you rather be sexy or rich? Mm -hmm. Even when the market goes down, stick with your automatic investments. As Warren Buffett says, and Warren Buffett is one of the top three richest men in the entire world. uh, Warren Buffett says, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. I like that quote. Why are you blinking? Why are you blinking? It's an 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 attitude blink. Regarding the worry of losing all your money. It's hard for me to suddenly, (laughs) on week eight, to quote Warren Buffett, who, by the way, he appeared side by side in a picture next to. Not in. It was just side by side Forbes magazine. (laughs) He was missing the preposition. Um, Yeah. See, again, that just felt like very like. He knows he can't lie, but he's like grabbing for credentials. I just, the other day on Instagram, I saw this thing. It was a person saying, stop trying to be a financial guru when you don't have any money. Now, I'm not yeah. saying he doesn't have any money, but I feel like he has self-generated himself. Mm-hmm. He's turned himself into a financial influencer. Yeah. That's what he feels like. Yeah, he has. He has. Uh, yes. So he's, but we are going to. Listen. Damn it. We're going to review this book. I'm Whether not we saying love let's him or not. not. I just I know. You know where I come from, which is I hate well, everybody. I do, and I I want to know what credentials are and why we should listen to you. Thank and it you. sounds like he he got very excited and is very passionate about this, and that's great. That's great. Good for you. Explain what this is to people who you don't know. What know I'm passionate but about open heart surgery. You gonna let me do it? Are you passionate about open? I didn't know. <laughs> let me know if you ever want to try. So regarding the worry of losing all your money by investing, he says it's an emotional response that's not based on reason. If you look at the last 60 years of data, you're better off investing than not. Mm -hmm. And what about all the money you'll lose by not investing? Mm -hmm. Many people who say these things don't know what they don't know. It's true. To be fair, only 20% of Americans invest in the stock market. Yeah. It's not an accurate reflection of the economy, and it's not... Although he is making an advocate and an advocating for a, a way to enter into investing, for most people who are living on debt, mm-hmm. living in debt and on living on credit and living mm-hmm. paycheck to paycheck and are choosing between heat and medicine, mm-hmm. it is not a, a, an easily accessible method of investing. That's right. And it sounds so great to talk about tax-free money when you turn 59 and a half and da-da-da-da. My dad died when he was 50. So, you know, and a, a lot of the men in my family do not live to retirement age. The women, we last forever. <laughs> but so for me, that's really going to change my investment style. I don't care as much about my Roth IRA as the rest of it because I want my money easily accessible because the people around me have died and have not been able to mm-hmm. access that money. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I love everybody who's like, yeah, just till age 65. And it's like, you need to pull shit out before 65 most of the time. That's mm-hmm. going to be the majority experience for mm-hmm. people 
in my completely not backed up opinion that is just... <laughs> but at least you're not writing a book and asking me to buy it. You don't know. Okay. You don't know. Okay. Here's a caveat. The Lisa and Misty story. I love it. Um, so he says investing is not about picking stocks. It's all about the diversity of your por- portfolio mm-hmm. to minimize risk. So there's bonds, stocks, and funds. Right. You can control your own risk by allocating investments different ways. Um, Ramit says your asset allocation is much more important than any one stock you could pick. Agreed. Um, unless you got in on Google early. Thank you. He goes into a lot of details on investing here. So, again, highly recommend this chapter if you want to learn more. Uh, or as Ramit says, see what's going on under the hood of investments. The Cliffs notes are stocks offer the most potential for high return, but less stability. Bonds offer a lot more stability, but less returns. Funds are collections of stocks, but he goes into mutual funds, index funds, life cycle funds, 401ks, etc. Lots of detail. By the way, he loves life cycle funds. So um, I love soul cycle funds. Soul cycle is so expensive. I was like, oh, I'm gonna do. Maybe I'll see about doing a class. And it's like thirty five dollars a class. I don't go to soul. That is the most bougie, bougie exercise thing I have ever heard of. Um, skip Soul Cycle once per week and put that thirty five dollars in investments. <laughs> um, so a life cycle fund is a fund which is a group of stocks. But what's really cool about a life cycle fund is it automatically adjusts to be less risky as you age. Mm-hmm. So for example, I um I started investing in the Vanguard 2045 Target Retirement Fund, mm-hmm. which is for people who want to retire in 2045, which doesn't sound that far away and yet is far away. But we're like almost in 2020. It's only great. 26 years away. Oh yeah, okay, that sounds further. Uh uh for some reason 25 didn't sound that far but 26 did. Thank you. Learning, growing, always. Uh, but what it does is it it's it's geared towards a lot of stocks right now, but, but it eventually will change your money, yeah, into bonds. And you don't have to touch it. Mm-hmm. So that's that is again passively managed. If you mm-hmm. hook up your bank account to put in a few dollars a week or a month into that, it'll change for you. You don't have to think about it. Just hope that it does well. Um, he says. Timing matters. When you're in your 20s, a portfolio built mostly on stocks makes sense. As you're near retirement, moving your portfolio to mostly bonds makes a lot more sense because you don't want to be as risky. In your 30s and older, you'll want to balance your portfolio with more bonds. So when I read this chapter, I was feeling super motivated to invest again because I invested. I got pretty active with it in my 20s and then haven't touched it for five years. Uh, and I, I was like, okay, I, I want to invest again. And so I logged on and I got overwhelmed really quickly. Talk about decision paralysis, yeah. too much information. And I'm somebody who knows a little bit about investing and has done it before. And I logged on and was like, oh God. Um, I got overwhelmed when I went to look into index funds on Vanguard's website. There's so much information. I had to take a break. Uh, and I, I wrote, I had to take a break and we'll need to go back when I'm feeling more resilient. Errant paralysis is real. That's what I wrote. So the action steps for this week are figure out your investing style. Do you want simplicity or more control and complexity? You, uh, number two is research your investments. This will take you three hours to one week. Step three, buy your funds, which will take you between one hour and one week. And transfer money to your investment accounts and go for it. So you're now an investor. That's the end of the six-week program. Hooray! No, we're not done with the book. Chapter 8. 
Um, so chapter eight is easy maintenance. Your system is only as strong as the amount of money you put into it. Getting started is the hardest step. It's true. But every dollar you invest now will be worth many more later. So optimize your spending and see how you can invest more now. It's never easier to do this than in your 20s and 30s. So the sooner you do it, the sooner you'll be rich. He says you'll also notice how badly other people are managing their money. Ignore the noise and stay focused on yours. Force yourself not to log into your investment accounts more than once a month. It's all about the long term. Rebalance your asset allocation when you need to. If a fund has gained a bunch of money or lost a bunch of money, you may want to reallocate. Set automatic reminders to do this. He suggests some online guides to help. So you could every three months, you could set a calendar appointment that's like, hey, see if you're still investing in what you want to. That's great. Great. Stop worrying about taxes. You only pay taxes if you're making money and it's your civic duty to pay taxes. I like that. I agree. Don't pull your money out right away. If you lose some money, dig into what's behind the downturn before selling or not. Mm -hmm. Really look at the industry. Create an emergency fund that will cover six months of expenses. It will save you from dipping into your investments. Get insurance, homeowners, earthquake, flood, and life. Mm -hmm. Chapter nine, the final chapter, a rich life. I really liked this chapter and actually found it the most valuable part of the book. He answers... So many questions, including things like whether to pay down your student loans or invest, how to talk about money with your significant other, a guide to buying a car, why we're all hypocrites about our weddings, and whether or not real estate is truly a good investment. And the answer is it depends on the city you're in. It depends if you're actually buying with your means, he breaks like a house within your means. He breaks down all the hidden costs that you don't expect about it. And it turns out uh, I will maybe never own a home because I it is impossible. Yay, that's the book. Wrap up. So that's I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sadie. Obviously, we can't cover every single thing in the book in one podcast episode. So if you want to read it for yourself, it's available on audible.com, the free library, library app Overdrive, and wherever books are sold. And if you want to check out his online tools and resources, his website is IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com. Wow, Misty, thank you. Thank you. Can I share one thing about controversy with you? Nothing would make me happier. Right. This is according to the Wikipedia page on Ramit Sethi, because I was looking for more credentials. And here's what I found. Quote, according to five glass door reviews, Ramit's company, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, has a 2.9 star rating out of five from current and former employees. Only 23% of current or former employees recommend the company to a friend. Some of the complaints include bad leadership, long and inflexible hours, and an overall lack of trust the company has in employees. Ramit's content has been criticized for being ineffective. Unquote. And I wrote, I found this very ironic, given that Ramit says you don't need to listen or trust financial experts. Yeah, fuck him. Uh, Misty. Yo, girl. What did you feel that uh, the author got right? <sighs> uh, covering all the basics, the very basic tenets of finance. Yeah, this felt, there's no, so no woo-woo in this. So basic. It's so practical, Patty. Yeah. What do you feel like he got wrong? I really did not like the humor. Okay. There is fat shaming 
in the book right at the top. But again, I re- I think he listened to Dave Ramsey and that was a big influence on him. Mm-hmm. And Dave Ramsey does that too. Yeah. Um, I found it really jarring. Like he uses the metaphor of physical fitness to describe financial fitness. Um, he also throws a lot of shade. He'll say things like, if you make this decision, you're a moron, which I sometimes liked and other times found very, very annoying. Yeah. Again, it's a 27-year-old's humor from 2009 so just know that going in so if you're a 23 year old and you're and and that's in your wheelhouse and it's like kind of collegey humor great but it just wasn't it didn't feel sophisticated and accessible no it feels very accessible i take that back but it did not feel refined or sophisticated or even just like like it felt unnecessary a lot of the time I feel like you're kind of already leading into this, but who is this book perfect for and who is Millennials it who don't know anything about finance. Who don't have a checking account. That's right. That's right. I, uh, you know, and this, yes, and this book is um, terrible for people with sophisticated senses of humor uh, who are looking for more than like a checking account often doesn't have an interest. Yeah. Right. And and I do want to say who would who think budgets are helpful. Yeah. Will you ask me what I put into practice from this book? Yeah. Misty. Yeah. What did you put into practice from this book? Oh Lisa, I'm so glad you asked. So uh remember when I, I wrote that I took a break from investing? I logged on to look at index mm-hmm. funds and I got overwhelmed. Well, I did take a break and I came back and I didn't set end up investing in any index fund um, because I wanted to call and talk to a brokerage person and mm-hmm. ask some questions. Mm-hmm. But I did end up setting up some automatic investments. Cool. I looked and I was like, I think I could do like 20 bucks a week into my investment account. I'm gonna, just going to set it up. And in two clicks, it was set up and that's happening. And now I'm kind of going like, cool, I'm guilt free that I'm at least a little bit Great. investing again. So I thought that was cool. Great. Do you have a listener challenge? Uh, Yes, Lisa. I want you to look at your accounts and see if you can set up any auto-saving or auto-investing. Is there some part of your financial life that you can automate? Okay. Yes. I do some already, but I'll take a look. Yeah. Um, Great. Is there anything else that you want to share or that we need to cover um so the one thing i will say as a palate cleanser is uh there's a video that's been floating around for quite some time it's so brilliant it is called Mm -hmm. asmr for white liberals it's beautiful satire it's brilliant satire if you just go to youtube.com and type in asmr for white liberals it is so good it's so funny Yep. Um, God, it's so good. So I loved that so much. I don't want to spoil it by saying anything about it. Uh, just go watch it. It's two minutes long. It's it won't so take funny. any time. So funny. Um, so everybody, if you read, because, you know, my friend who recommended this book to me really loves this book. And, but I, I don't know I'm what sorry, his financial Jesse. background was before <laughs> it. <laughs> sorry, Jesse. Um, um, but if you love this book, Tell us. Tell yeah. us how it helped and how, how you did it and how we're wrong. We love when you tell us that we're wrong. It helps us grow. Mm-hmm. Growth mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that might really, really conclude the financial series. Oh, the financial series. No. For now. No. Um, although I do really want to cover uh, Tony Robbins' Money Master of the Game and a Suze Orman book. So, oh, yeah. So write in with your suggestions, everybody. I am hyped up. 
Yeah. All right. We're going to end this. We are going to put you out of your misery. Life Life is abundant. abundant. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at Podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.